our reading this morning is Luke chapter 8, um, reading verses 26 to 30. Um, these scriptures are a gift to us, and I think sometimes I don't appreciate just how amazing they are and how privileged we are to be able to read it um, in our own language. They are God's own word, and his breath is spoken to us through these pages. Um, we're told of his divine love, and we learn more about his character through these scriptures. Um, if you have a look around, you'll see there's Bibles scattered um, on the windowsills. Um, if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, please take home um, one with you. Um, so now we're going to read through Luke. Um, after the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll all respond together. Um, thanks be to God. So let's hear, us, let's hear the Lord speak to us um, this morning from Luke 8, 26 to 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out onto land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to part into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter the east, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of their Gersonies asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city just how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, just um, let us pray. Um, Father, thank you for the gift that it is to be here this morning. Um, I thank you that we can celebrate a living God, um, not just a person who had lived a long time ago and died, but one who is alive today and with us right now. I Pray that as we learn more about Jesus' ministry, um, that we're just reminded just how powerful you are. Um, even though there is evil in the world and demons do try and cloud our view of you, um, I pray that, you'll, that we'll remember that you are just so much greater than any of that. Even the demons fear your name. You are all-powerful. Um, sin and death couldn't even stand against you. I pray for Travis um, as he comes up to speak that you'll just protect him. Um, you'll bless him and speak through him this morning. I pray this all in Jesus' precious, precious and holy name.
Thank you, Lauren. Is this on? Great. Um, there it is. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Travis. Um, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, if you don't know me, uh, I'm one of the elders here at Village South. Um, and if you don't know me, it probably means you're a visitor, so welcome to Village. I know we've already said that before, but I always like to take the opportunity to say it myself. Uh, we're really glad that you are with us this morning. Um, so I don't know if you recognize this. You probably haven't seen it for about three months. Um, this is a Luke series that we were in the middle of um, a long, long time ago. And then we pressed pause on that, and then we did Advent, and then we did uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we did Easter, and we decided it might be good to go back. So it was kind of like picking up a novel that was really good, and then like putting it down for a few months, and then picking back up and trying to be like, what was going on again in the story? And so um, I have the privilege slash task of trying to like catch us all back up um, and then kind of go through this passage this morning. And so um, if you, just to kind of refresh our memories, um, the book of Luke was written by the Apostle Luke. It's one of the four Gospels, um, obviously. And so Luke, in the, in the introduction, kind of talks to this guy named Theophilus and has explained to him why he's writing him this letter. And he basically says, like, look, I've taken eyewitness accounts, and I'm writing this to you so that you might have confidence in the things that you've been taught about Christ. And so the whole book is meant to be um, kind of like evidence uh, for Jesus' life, teaching, ministry, the events that happen. He's like, you can trust these things. Here are the accounts of the people I've talked to um, of what God has done um, and what Christ did in, in his life, teaching, burial, death, burial, and resurrection, and all that stuff. And so when we read this book... Um, not that we can't trust all of Scripture, but we can specifically trust this because the point of it is for us to have confidence in our faith in Jesus. And so um, the point of this book, of the book of Luke, is to look to Christ um, and to put our faith um, and confidence in him. And so where we're at right now as we're looking at this story, um, we are seeing Jesus heal this man with demons. And so um, I, don't, I don't know about you um, or kind of what stories you like to read or whatever. I'm a bit of a nerd and really enjoy sort of like epics, generally sci-fi fantasy type things. Like everyone's asking my favorite movie. I'm like, I don't know, it's like all of the Star Wars movies and all of the Lord of the Rings movies. I can't pick just one kind of thing. And But the re- when I, what I was kind of considering when I was kind of looking at these passages and kind of refreshing my mind about Luke is one of the elements of those stories that I really enjoy is that you usually have a character in there who everyone is familiar with. And then over the course of the narrative, they're like, oh, there's like more to you than like what I originally thought. Like, like, I don't know if you're familiar with Star Wars, but like the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi is this old guy living in the desert. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, he was like a Jedi Knight. And he was like part of this big war that happened. And there's all this history to who this person is. Or if you're a Lord of the Rings person, like the person of Aragorn, he's just like this kind of wandering traveler. And the more you learn about his character, um, and it's beautiful actually the way the book writes it, He's actually revealed to be a king and heir to the throne, and there's like this kind of greatness and grandness about who he is that you're just unfamiliar with in the early stages of the story. And that's kind of what we're seeing happen here, is we're beginning to see the disciples and the followers of Jesus see Jesus, and they're like, oh, there's more to this. He's like more than a rabbi. Like, there's something else happening here. Um, the story like, right, like, that just precedes this is the story of Jesus calming the storm. Um, I would say it's what we read last week, but like I said, it was a few months ago. Um, but if you're familiar with the story, right, Jesus and the disciples get in the boat, they're sailing across the Sea of Galilee, and um, while sailing, they're, like, the winds pick up, the waves are terrifying, and the disciples basically fear for their lives, right? They're like, we're going to die. And so um, Jesus um, is sleeping. I don't know how he does. I, don't, I can't sleep in the 
rocking a ship like that. Or maybe you could. It's probably like a getting rocked asleep. I don't know. Anyway, so Jesus is asleep, and they're like, what are you doing? We're going to die. And so he rebukes the storm. He just like stands up and tells it to be still. Um, and I like to do the exercise of being like, what, what, how would I have responded had I been there in the story and seen that happen? And I don't know if you could imagine like a really fierce windstorm or one of those storms that are like really kind of come through here with a lot of like winds and rains and stuff. And just imagine someone standing out in the street being like, stop. And then everything stops. Like that'd be kind of a weird experience, right? And so the disciples see this happen and it says that they were afraid and that they marveled saying, who is this that he commands even the wind and waters and they obey him. And this story they're reading happens when they land on the other side of the lake, right? So the disciples have just seen Jesus do this to the storm. They arrive on the shore, and then they see this guy. Now, again, let's put ourselves in this sort of like imaginative place. If you're one of the disciples, you get off the boat, you just had this really weird experience happen, and then there's this naked guy that like approaches Jesus and says to him, um, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. This guy's naked. He's probably a bit emaciated because he's been living among tombs in a graveyard. And then occasionally the demons take him out into the desert, which sounds like a rough life. Um, He is so often seized by these demons that he, it says, was bound and under guard and shackles and change that he would break and leave. So like, again, try to picture what you're seeing, right? Like a naked man, kind of like a, what is that thing? Um, Christmas Carol, right? Like the character, I can't remember his name, blanking on it, who has like the chains, right? He's kind of wandering around. He's like, flavor, except that guy's naked, right? And, and wild and crazy and just approaches Jesus and then says this to him. And you're like, what is happening? Like, what is going on? Um, then over the course of their conversation, Jesus responds by saying, what is your name? And the man's like, legion. Um, and it turns out that he's not just oppressed by a demon, but he's possessed by many demons. Now, legion is a Roman military term. Um, if you're familiar with the Roman military, which I was not in preparing for the sermon, a legion of troops is 6,000 troops. And I don't know that that means that this guy had 6,000 demons, but he had more than one. Um, he had so many that when Jesus cast these demons out, they f- like go into a herd of pigs, however many that was, and they rush down into the water and are drowned. Right? So that we know that there's a, this man is oppressed by a lot of demons. Um, and in most, most scholars say that in most narratives of people being oppressed by demons, this guy pretty much had it the worst of anyone. Um, Jesus asks his name. He says it's legion. Um, they recognize who Jesus is. They beg Jesus not to send them to the abyss. We'll get into that a little bit later. It's pretty important and kind of interesting. Um, they ask permission to go into the pigs. Jesus gives them permission. They go into the pigs. The pigs run down to the water and are drowned. Okay, again, you're a disciple. You just saw Jesus calm a storm, and then you land, and this is what happens. This is 24 hours of your life. All of this stuff is going on, right? Um, you're beginning to realize, hey, this Jesus guy, he's like, he might be more than just like a guy who's really good at teaching and like he knows his Torah, right? It, maybe there's something else to the, the, clearly there's more going on here with this person. Um, the local herdsmen um, are like, that was weird and not cool. And they leave and they go into the city and tell the townspeople what happened and everyone comes out and they have the same response to Jesus that the disciples did in the story previous. They're afraid. But instead of marveling at Jesus, they're like, hey, you got to go. Like, we don't want you around here. And so Jesus leaves, and this man, the people refer to him as the demoniac or whatever, um, but he comes to Jesus like, 
please let me go with you. And Jesus tells him, no, you need to stay. You need to go to your home and you need to tell everyone what God has done for you. And so that's what the man does. Um, I think it's an interesting point, too, that the Gerasenes, if you're familiar with the geography, the, the, Jesus sailed from the western shore of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so the place they're in now is not actually Israel, but it's like Gentile. I don't know what nation it is, but it's like a Gentile land. I don't know what nation it is, but basically these aren't, these aren't Jews here. These are Gentiles. And so this man is a Gentile, and then in this story becomes the first evangelist to the Gentiles, which I thought was really cool. And so that's the story that happens, right? And so as a person, as a disciple, again, putting ourselves in that position, you look at Jesus and you marvel, wonder, are afraid. I don't know. There's a, a lot that Jesus has just done that is pretty astounding. And you're, and you're probably wondering lots of different things. Now for us, in the present day, we obviously know the whole narrative. We know Jesus and what he's done. Um, but I think in this particular story, there's three lessons for us as a church um, and as a people to kind of look at and reflect on um, in light of our own lives. Um, we can be, uh, I know Andrew says this a lot, but we can have the tendency to come to Scripture and, and prescriptive Scripture's easy, right? It says, do this for these reasons. Okay, I'll do it. Off you go, right? But then you have stories and narratives where it's like, it can, it can be a little trickier to, like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, that's great that Jesus does that, but what does that mean for me today? How do I live in light of this? And is there an action point? Or is there no action point? Do I just, like, move on or whatever? And so, um, anyway, I think these lessons are really helpful for us um, this morning. So we're going to look at three of them. Um, before I do, I want to pray for us real quick. Uh, God, thank you for your word and for Jesus. Um, God, I know I've kind of invited us into the land of imagination to kind of put ourselves in the story a little bit. Um, I, I, I wonder what, how I would have responded being here and seeing Christ do these things. Um, to see the sort of power and authority and... Yeah, just miracles happening. Um, God, I pray... Uh, as we reflect on this passage and reflect specifically on Christ, that you would help us to uh, marvel at him, um, to respond to him. God, I pray that this would help us shape and have a better and more correct view of who you are um, and how we are, to, are we are, how we are to live in light of that. So we thank you for um, your word and for this scripture and what it means for us this morning. God, as we hear it, I pray that you speak to our hearts with it and encourage us by it. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Here's the first lesson. I'm going to dive right in. The first lesson is that there is a spiritual reality to the world that we live in. This might be obvious. Um, I, I think, when I was, as I was reflecting on this passage, there's obviously demons in this story, right? And so there's this thing that we can tend to do where we can become wrapped up in this like, you know, an expository explaining of, like, this is what demons are and who they are and why they matter and how we're meant to respond and all this kind of stuff. And I'm, I, I want to try to avoid that version of it, but I also don't want to just, like, neglect it and kind of move, like, skirt around by, like, oh, yeah, there's demons, like, whatever. Let's just kind of focus on what Jesus did here. Um, and the reason why is because of this first point, that, that, that there is a spiritual reality to the world that we live in. 
The disciples in this story are coming face to face with a reality that there is like the interfacing of the spiritual world and the physical world, right? Like clearly this man is oppressed by demons. Very clearly the realities of the spiritual world are affecting the physical world and they're seeing it happen. Um, And so I think this is the first lesson for us because the reality is and what scripture teaches is that we are spiritual beings. You and I are spiritual beings. We live in a spiritual world. We're in the midst of a spiritual battle. There are angels. There are demons. There is a devil. All of it's real. Some people, like, I mean, we live, especially in the West, in the age of reason and enlightenment. So this idea of a spiritual world is kind of like sort of scoffed at or brushed aside. Um, If I can't see it, hear it, taste it, touch it, um, smell it, right? Like it's not real. If I can't reason it, experience it, test it, like I can't apply the scientific method to this, therefore it doesn't exist. Um, And that's not true. It's what the Bible says is true. And so for many of us in here, especially many of us who I believe are, who who are believers, I would probably wager that if I were to ask you like, hey, are angels, demons, the devil, is all that real? You would probably say yes. And if I were to ask you, are demons, the devil, all this, is all of this, are, are they all kind of active players today? You'd probably also say yes. If I were to ask you, what does that look like? And how does that affect your daily life? I think we would probably see a little more hesitancy to know how to answer that question in particular. And so, in light of this reality, I wanted to survey it just a little bit. I think, firstly, I th- we as believers respond in one of two ways, in my own experience and what I've seen. The first way we respond to the reality of the spiritual world in our, in, like in our day-to-day life is with a practical negligence. And by that, I mean we, in practice, are negligent of the reality that there is a devil and demons and all of these things. Basically, what it looks like is we agree that what the Bible says about these things is true. However, those truths, that information doesn't really affect our daily lives. This is the category I sort of default to fall into. Like, I don't know the last time I thought about, like, the enemy and, you know, all of those things and how that's affecting my life. Like, it, it just isn't a common occurrence for me. Now, the dangers of this thinking of being practically negligent are this. If we live negligent to the reality we then allow the enemy to have influence over our lives, uh, lives through lies, temptation, deceit, etc., without really our, having our guard up. In Ephesians 6, which I'm not going to go there and kind of go through the whole passage, but Paul basically is encouraging the church in Ephesus um, to put on the full armor of God for the purpose of standing against the schemes of the devil. So being practically negligent of the devil, demons, their schemes, is to basically walk into this battle wearing like shorts, t-shirts, and flip-flops, right? Just like we're just very, we're prepared to go to the coast, and this is what is actually happening, right? And so we leave ourselves very open to that. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Usual Suspects. It came out in 1995. Um, There's a character in there that you don't really meet, or do you, Um, called Kaiser Soze, who's like the man behind everything that's happening, and the guy they, he's talked about is like, no one knows who he is, and no one's met anyone who's met him, but everyone knows that he's the one pulling the strings. And in sort of kind of the explanation of his character in the movie, um, 
one of the characters describe, says this. He says, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And a lot of us live our spiritual lives that way. Um, and so, yes, practical negligence, right? The other kind of version of our response to the spiritual reality in our lives, I keep bringing this rug up here, um, is what I would call a hypervigilance. It's kind of an overcorrection to the other end. Um, hypervigilance looks like seeing the devil everywhere and everything is a spiritual attack on your life and everything bad that happens is because of the devil, you know, trying to ruin your life and make things terrible for you or whatever else. And it kind of leads to what I would call like a de the devil made me do it sort of mentality. Um, and the dangers of this are twofold. Number one, it's a distraction. Um, if we become hypervigilant, we then live our lives so concerned with seeing the devil behind every corner that our attention is no longer focused on Christ, but, look, but on that. We get distracted. We don't spend time with Jesus. We don't abide the way we should, and we become distracted from the things that God has actually called us to do, the ways God actually has called us to live, and the mission he has given us as Christians to live out our faith and to share our faith with other people. And secondly, this sort of hypervigilant mindset can also lead to us excusing our sin. If we believe the devil made me do it, we then begin to justify our sin as, well, the devil's influence on my life and he's making me do this and I don't really have a responsibility in this because I, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help myself, right? Like it was just too much. I mean, we see this from the story of Adam and Eve in the very, very, very beginning where, you know, God comes and he talks to Adam and he's like, hey man, what happened? He didn't say it like that, but I'm paraphrasing. Um, and Adam's like, the woman you gave me, she gave me fruit, and I ate it. Like, I couldn't help it. Like, it was her fault. She gave it to me, and what am I supposed to do, you know? And then God then turns his attention to Eve and is like, what happened? And she's like, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. It's not my fault. I was deceived. I didn't know what I was doing anymore. You know, it's, it's someone else's fault, and it causes us to not take responsibility that those choices even though we were deceived on our own, um, we neglect the responsibility of our choices, our thoughts, and our actions, and blame it on someone else. Um, and that's not right either. A right mindset and right engagement of this spiritual reality is to be aware. I would call it awareness. Um, that's kind of the way Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6, with a level of seriousness, but not a level of fear, not a hypervigilance, not like always you know, being on edge, and being afraid, um, but also not just being dismissive and negligent about all these things too. And I will say this real quick, because I know I've been on this point for a while. Um, the spiritual reality in our lives is not the point of this passage. Demons are not the point of this story, um, but they're in the story, and I think we need to talk about it, right? The, these realities help us to appreciate the next two um, points. Um, there's a couple of things I just want to mention about our spiritual reality in terms of awareness. Um, these are things from the Bible. This isn't exhaustive. Um, for the sake of not plagiarizing, I basically stole these from the book Bible Doctrine from Wayne Gruden. So there you go. There's my citation. Um, but yeah, these are some things that are true about our spiritual reality that I want us to be aware of as we go forward in the rest of this sermon. Number one, I said it already. We live in a spiritual world with spiritual beings. There is a devil there are angels. There are demons. They exist. They're real. They're active. Um, we are in the midst of a spiritual battle for the souls of all of humanity. And that battle is happening right now as God's kingdom is coming and has now come. That is the spiritual reality of the world. 
that's happening. Number two, the devil as a person or spirit is the originator of sin. He is the original sinner. The Bible talks about how he sinned, how he was cast out from heaven. Because he sinned, he, was the, he ever since then has been the one to deceive others into sin. So since that moment, he has since tempted others to do the same, starting with Adam and Eve and continuing on throughout history. Number three, there are, uh, the devil and demons are limited by God's control and have limited power. Multiple passages about this. Um, but I, I'll suffice it to say this way. I was talking with a friend this week about this idea, and she was saying that one of the helpful sort of things that she had heard was um, someone explained this, is like, imagine like, like a Rottweiler on a lead, right? You have something that can be harmful but is restrained. And so don't get close to it, but also you're okay, if that makes any sort of sense. Um, and God's the one holding the lead, by the way, that little analogy. Um, number four, um, the ultimate destruction of the spiritual enemies of God, uh, the ultimate end of the spiritual enemies of God is destruction, and they know it. Um, looking actually at our story here, when, the, when the, demon, the man who's oppressed by demons sees Jesus, um, the demons say, where's the verse at? Looking here, 32. Um, now a herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Oop, I missed it. Sorry. Um, 31. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Even the demons at this point in the story recognize that this man, Jesus, who they see is the one who is their ultimate end and has the power and authority to send them to their ultimate destruction. So they're in this destruction, and they know it. And finally, in the meantime, so in the present day, um, demons or the enemies of God oppose and try to destroy every work of God here on the world. This is why we need to be aware. So this looks like them using, uh, this looks like them using every tactic to try to blind people to the gospel. So for the non-believer, what the work of the enemy looks like in the world is um, them trying to blind or keep in darkness those who don't believe through lies, deception, temptation, and trying to keep people in their bondage to sin so that they might not experience the freedom in Christ and respond to the gospel. For the believer, what it looks like for us is that they will use temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, and any other means to hinder a Christian's witness and usefulness in the world. And, like, in, in effect, to subvert and undermine the church's witness in the world through division and disunity because of these things. That's what they're trying to do. And that's the awareness we need to have. Now, why is this important? Why is this, like, why do I go sort of spend that time talking about this? Well, because of the second point. The second lesson for us in this passage, and this is where we see, like, most blatantly, is that Jesus has the power and authority over the spiritual world. Just like in the story where Jesus calms the storm and we see his power and authority over the physical world, over nature, in this story we see Jesus showing us his power and authority over the spiritual world. How do we see this? Well, we see it in verse 28. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The demons identify Jesus as who he is. So the disciples see Jesus do this stuff on the boat, and they, who is this man? They marvel. They don't understand. The demons know who this guy is. 
They know that he's the son of the most high God. They know that he has the power and authority to send them into the abyss and beg him not to do so later in the story. Jesus reveals the truth of who this demon really, these demons are with a question by asking their name and they respond. They recognize his power and authority and they plead for mercy, begging to be sent into a herd of pigs. And Jesus gives them permission to do so. You cannot give permission if you don't have the authority. My kids don't give me permission to do stuff. I give my kids permission to do stuff. Or I try to. Right? Um, You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't give permission if you don't have the authority. Why does this idea matter to us? Because it's, it's maybe obvious you might hear me say, Jesus has power and authority of the spiritual world. You're like, of course he does. We hear about that every week. Like, that's who he is. But why it matters to us is this. It matters to us firstly because it means that Jesus is God. And so if you were a disciple in this story, you didn't know this yet. You didn't recognize that Jesus was God yet. And now you're beginning to see it. Only God has power and authority over Satan and demons in this way. And Jesus is expressing, he's showing that power and authority. Jesus even identifies as God at the end of the story when he tells the man to return home and declare how much God had done for you. And then it says that the man, where does it say this? It says, and he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is where the disciples begin to realize that Jesus is more than a rabbi. In this story and in pretty much I mean, most of the other stories of Jesus casting out demons throughout Scripture, it becomes a real sticking point for people. Because even even the religious leaders, they see him cast out demons, and they're like, oh, he's he's of the devil. They accuse Jesus of being either demon-possessed or the devil himself because he had power to do these things. And Jesus is like, that doesn't make any sense, and kind of like refutes that. But like, it becomes this sticking point for people of like, how does this man, how can he do what he's doing? No one had ever seen someone with this sort of power and authority um, over the spiritual like, do these things. And it's because Jesus is God. The second reason why it matters is because it means that Jesus can deliver us from our spiritual bondage, danger, or influence that's going on in our own lives. We see this in this story that obviously, I mean, again, what happens in the story is Jesus delivers this man from his oppression from the demons. Like, that's what happens. The man doesn't ask for it. Jesus just does it. But we see this language and really this reality described throughout the New Testament specifically in, in what the gospel has done for us and what the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection means for us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, and in verse 20, the Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, And you, you and I, those who believe, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, which in New Testament talk is spiritual rulers and authorities. That's, again, the enemies of God. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And a couple verses later, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... You're dead to that. 
Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And that has more context than what Paul was talking about at the time. But the idea basically is like, what Christ accomplished on the cross is freedom for you from your bondage to sin and from your affiliation with uh, yeah, the power that, that the enemy had over you. The third thing it means for us is that we don't need to be afraid of Satan or demons. And I think this is a big one because I think a lot of times, especially me, even still, when I think about the reason why I'm practically negligent is because it's based in fear, that I have something to be afraid of with this. But we don't have anything to be afraid of because Jesus has power and authority. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, both the physical and the spiritual, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been bought with a price, and we belong to Christ and Christ alone. And so there is no power or influence that the enemy has over us that we don't have deliverance from and the ability to reject. Fourthly, it means this. It means that we have authority over the enemies of God in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to stick on this one too long because actually if you come back in maybe four to six weeks, I'm not really sure what the sermon schedule is, but Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 10. Um, he sends the 72 out, and they go, and when they come back, he's like, how did it go? And here's what they say. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Like, that's like, that was the highlight of their mission trip, right? And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Again, Jesus is claiming to be God here. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all of the power of the enemy, nothing shall hurt you. How awesome does that sound? That is true of you as a believer. Pretty cool, right? But look what Jesus says directly afterwards. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It matters because we have authority. I kind of just put that in there to reemphasize the fact that we've got nothing to be afraid of when it comes to the enemy. Nothing to fear. But I put this particular passage in there with the caveat that Jesus himself gave us because this isn't the point. Like our authority to do whatever, um, to rebuke, command, dismiss, whatever demons in our lives. Like that's, that's great. It's not the point. The point is that our names are written in heaven and that is accomplished through the work of Christ. It is incredible that Jesus has given us this authority. But the real point is that Jesus has all power and authority over these and he had or has a power, power and authority to deliver us. The real point is the gospel, which is lesson number three in this passage. Jesus saves and delivers helpless people, and he has saved us when we were most helpless. Now, this morning I kind of like went, did the whole like exercise of imagination right thing, and kind of put us in the story. And for the majority of it, I kind of like was like, imagine you're a disciple. Imagine seeing this and you're a disciple. Imagine you're a disciple. But in the context of the gospel, the person we should most affiliate with in this story is the demoniac. I want to show you a couple things here. So look at, just let's look at the demoniac real quick in the story. He's naked. 
And then after encountering with Jesus, he is now clothed. In scripture, nakedness is shame. Have you experienced shame in your life? Like we, okay, press pause real quick. I invited us to like identify with the demoniac and I don't know what your brain did, but it might've looked something like this. I haven't been demon possessed. I don't walk around naked. I've not broken bonds. I don't live among tombs. Yeah, sure, I've got problems with sin and stuff, but nothing like that. Like, I, don't, I can't affiliate with that experience. Sure, true. But have you experienced shame? If you were naked and exposed, if your life was put on display for everyone to see, what would you wish was covered up? That's how we affiliate. And after engaging with Jesus, after Jesus meets this man in his life, and loves him and delivers him, he has no more shame. Secondly, he is like out of his mind. He's wild. Um, I mean, to live among, among tombs, to, to wander out in the wilderness, it, it's, it's the behavior of a madman. And now he's in his right mind. For us, You can recall your life before Jesus. How did you used to think? What did you think would bring you pleasure, joy, satisfaction? After meeting Jesus, now how do you think? What does it look like for you to be in your right mind? The demoniac was among the dead, living in actually living in tombs. What greater physical picture of our spiritual reality without Christ than that? And now he's among the living. In fact, he is sitting at the very feet of Jesus. It's a really beautiful picture of the gospel and what happens to us in our own lives when God has called us from death into life. And we respond to the work of Christ on the cross. We experience Spiritually, the same transformation that this man did. Like the disciples on the boat in the story previous, and like the demoniac who was living among the tombs, you and I were helpless to deliver ourselves from our dire circumstance. Nothing we could do about it. We were on a boat being slammed and crashed by the waves and the wind, and we were going to drown. We were mad living among the tombs that we would finally die. And then we encountered Jesus. I want you to look at another passage with me real quick here um, because I think there's a lot of correlations to this man's experience of his life before and after Christ and what the Bible says is true of our own experience. If you would go to, well, it's going to be on the screen, so you don't have to. But in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see how this is a description of the demoniac? We were dead. We were living among the sons of disobedience or those who are also dead. 
terms of our mind, we were carrying the desires of our body and the mind, not the desires of Christ, not living, not thinking correctly, but living out of these selfish, fleshly desires. And in fact, it says we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Like we were very literally following the enemy towards his ultimate doom and destruction. And we might not want to admit that. We're like, I wasn't a Satanist, or I wasn't whatever. And sure, but the greatest trick the devil pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist, right? It might have not looked like that, or what you think that should look like. But that's what was happening. That's where we were. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, it, not a result of works so that no one may boast. There's two things I want to highlight here. Number one, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. Um, the demoniac never asked Jesus to deliver him. In the story, he never says, like, save me. What he says is, and I'll go back to it. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. And what he realizes or fears is that encountering Jesus is going to mean such a change in his own life that it will be torment. Now, the reality is the only torment in this story is the demons that, that oppressed this man. It was not, this man was not tormented. I want you to hear that. But that's what he feared. But he never asked Jesus to save him, to deliver him, to cast the demons out, to bring any sort of relief. And even so, Christ did it anyway. And with us in the gospel and where we were and in our deadness spiritually, we never called out to God and God sent Christ anyway. Now, all that needed to happen for us to know Christ, to have a right relationship with God and to be forgiven of our sins, Christ did anyway without us asking to be saved. Second thing that I think is really important from the Ephesians passage is that it is not a result of works so that no one may boast. The demoniac did nothing. He never asked for it, and he didn't do anything. He was delivered anyway. Jesus saves and delivers helpless people, and he has saved us when we were most helpless. I want to close with a couple observations about the people in the story. You have the disciples. Verse 25, when they're on the ship, their response to seeing Jesus' power and authority expressed was fear and wonder. They marveled and said, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? The other group of people you see are the local people, the herdsmen and the people from the town. Their response is also fear, but then also a running away or a pushing away of Jesus. They ask him to leave. Their fear doesn't draw them towards Christ. Their fear causes them to want to leave or to tell him to leave. 
And I was, as I was meditating on this, I was thinking, why, why is the response fear in both cases? I, I can understand the wonder and the marvel. I can, I can probably even understand the fear in a little bit of like, that's a pretty crazy thing that just happened. But as I was thinking about it, I, I really believe that the reason why they were afraid is because a man who has power and authority over nature and over the spiritual, like over the spiritual world and over the physical world has the authority and power speak into my own life, and to, and to make me change. And I don't know if they want that. And the demoniac didn't want that. He's the third person in the story who responds to Jesus. His response is fear of what Jesus might do to him. He thinks it's going to look like torment. But really it's deliverance. In fact, the demoniac is the only one who actually really engages with Jesus. Everyone else is just an observer at this point. Jesus is the one who actually does a work in someone's life, and the result of that is peace in the presence of God, and it's a desire to never leave. And if Christ has done a work like that in our own lives, then we too should be like this man was. We should feel no shame, we should be in our right mind. We should be seated in the very presence of God. We should desire that Christ never leave us. I love how it says at the end where it says, um, when Jesus is told, you know, asked to leave and he leaves, the man you know, begs that he might be with him. Like, what a desire. Like, do you have that desire in your, in your life? Like, could you imagine, like, how would you feel if the presence of God left you? Right? Do you fear? Do you do you, do you like desire Jesus so much that that's one of your greatest fears in life is that Christ would leave, or you would like not experience it that same way? Like that's what this means. He's like, don't ever go away. I don't ever want to be away from you anymore. But what ends up happening is Jesus actually gives this man a mission and a purpose. He tells them to return home, and declare how much God has done for him. And so the man went away, proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Um, I don't know if you're a believer in this room. If you are, um, this story is good news for the reasons that we talked about. Um, Christ has power and authority. We have an enemy. We need to be aware of him. We need not fear him. We've been delivered. We belong to Christ. And all the things that happen in this man's life have, have happened for us. We can rejoice in that. My prayer for us is that we would be like him and desire to cling that closely to Christ. Alternatively, if you're not a believer, if you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you are, as the Bible describes you, and really as this man was, separated, living among the dead, not in your right mind, blinded by the enemy. My prayer for you is that, though you may fear it to be torment, that you would allow Jesus to come into your life and change you. Because on the other side is peace and deliverance and freedom and wholeness. We're going to um, take communion, which we do every Sunday. Um, and communion is a, 